Today's message will come from another classic text, one of the more memorable stories, though there's a lot in the life of Jesus, which is the calming of the storm in Mark 4, 35. So there's a moment in life, and I don't think there's a name for it. There's no title, but it takes many forms, and so it's probably better if I give you an example, uh, though there could be many examples. Here, here's one. It's that thing, it's, it's that time in life where things go from what we call it, uh, potential energy to kinetic energy, when it goes from talk to action, when things go from uh, what if to what happened. So for example, let's say two men are out at a bar, not Calvary Hills men, mind you, but two men, and they start to get testy and have words with one another, and one says, I would beat you so bad, and the other says, I wish you would. And then the other says, well, you ain't got nothing. And the other says, I got more than enough for you. Well, what has happened so far? Nothing has actually happened. We're just talking. We're just talking. Is anyone a good fighter? Are both bluffing? It's kind of like a fight in sports, you know. You know, there's a whole lot of posturing and and chest bumping, but not a whole lot of fighting actually happens. Um, Nobody really knows until a punch is thrown. What are we talking about? What does this mean? Who... Who's making things up and who's for real? We don't know. Let me give you a completely different example. Let's say you're dating someone and you're trying really hard to impress them. And so you tell them that you have an exciting career as a marine biologist, but you're actually unemployed. One day as you're casually walking down the beach together, there's a beached whale surrounded by a large crowd. And someone shouts out, is anyone here a marine biologist? (laughs) Now, even though the sea was angry that day, you have a decision to make. Will you reveal that you are, in fact, all talk, not a marine biologist, or will you meet the challenge, rise to the occasion, and get that golf ball? Most things in life are (laughs) hypothetical, theoretical, until there's a revealing moment. In fact, the word apocalypse, where we get our Bible book revelation from, means a revealing. That's what it means. It's not really a book about fire and beast and explosions and death and scrolls and horses and riders, although those are there. It's primarily about all things that were once mystery are being revealed. There's no more mystery anymore. We now know what's going on. We know who's behind things. We know what's, in, what's going to happen. We see Jesus. There's no more veil. It's all over. Now, let's pick an example that's a little more close to home that we all go through because none of y'all are fighters or marine biologists. So let's think about this. What about a Christian that says, I have faith. I have faith. What about a Christian that says, I will not fear because I trust in the Lord. What about when we all sing the right songs, we all amen the right Bible verses, get them tattooed and plastered and printed and posted in all the right places, but then the sky grows dark and the wind rolls in and the waters get choppy. What's the response then? Is it what you thought it would be? Today's message is entitled A Case Study on Fear. We're going to study the storm that hit the disciples' boat with Jesus in it and their different reactions to the storm. And I hope that you see today, Jesus expects his disciples to have more faith in him than we have fear in the storm. So before we look at God's word, 
Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to move when this text is read and studied. God, to point and to poke and prod and convict. Lord, I I know that there are areas in life when I and we have not been as faithful as we would have liked to have been. And so, Father, rather than run from this, rather than make excuses for ourselves, Lord, would you just show us by the power of your Spirit what that area is. And Lord, we know that you're not the accuser. We know that you're the encourager. So, Father, would you build us up and pull us out of the pit and show us what it is to follow you in faith. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35. Since last week's message, uh, mostly what you missed between the two sermons was parables, teachings from Jesus. So if you want to go read those, it's right there in chapter 4. He had been teaching from boats pushed back from the shorelines because the crowds were trying to touch him constantly. It's hard to teach when someone's trying to constantly touch you. So they got in the boat, they pushed back off the shoreline, and Jesus taught that way. Mark includes the parable of the sower in chapter 4, as well as the lamp under the basket, as well as the mustard seed. Mark wants you to know also through these parables that uh, Jesus, while he was giving the parables publicly to the crowds, was pulling his disciples aside and giving them a little private uh, explanation of all the details. So we read... If you notice in chapter 4, the parable of the sower gets an explanation. It's one of the few parables that actually gets one. I wish they all had it in there, but they don't, right? So he goes through and says, the seed is this, and this soil is this. Not every parable does that. Uh, The sower does in Mark chapter 4, but we know that Jesus' disciples got everyone explained to them, boom, 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 line by line. How nice would that be? So he was explaining these things to them in private. So, after this full day of teaching all of these parables to these large crowds, uh, it was a tiresome day, I'm sure, for him, and so they get ready to cross the sea in the boat, because he was already teaching from a boat, and go across to the other side. So, let's read Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. We'll pause there. In our case study of fear today, I want you to see, number one, a fear-inducing event. A fear-inducing event event. If you're going to study fear, you need some event. If you're going to have a case study, you got to have a case, right? So we Americans probably spend most of our lives insulating ourselves from the chance of feeling fear or risk, except around, you know, Halloween time, you know, we would get it for about a month and then, all right, that was good. Then we move on and really our whole lives are trying to insulate ourselves from feeling fear. We like safety. We love safety. And we absolutely hate the feeling of being out of control. I speak for you and I speak for me, okay? I don't like it either. Fear lives in that dark, shadowy, unknown, uncontrollable, unpredictable place where you can't control your life. And that's where fear lives. And especially in these first century times, there was no better example of something that was uncontrollable, unknown, and unpredictable than the weather. Now, there was a time, it's hard for us to imagine, there was a time not that long ago before meteorology, before double Doppler radar, before 
hey, Siri, is it going to rain today? And you just find out before even the farmer's almanac. How many of y'all have actually used the farmer's almanac? All right, a few of you have, all right? Some of y'all got to go look that up later, all right? They still print it, by the way. Now, I don't want to ever insinuate that ancient people were, were not smart. They were. In fact, they did probably more with less than what we do today. Uh, they didn't have technology, and so they developed ways of, of tracking and watching storms. And, you know, there's a reason why we have little ditties like red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky at morning. There, you got it. Sailor's warning, you got it. But even for the most experienced fishermen, as certainly the disciples were, we know at least four of them were experienced fishermen, there was a certain level of unpredictability, especially on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, I'm told, haven't been there, but I uh, read from others that have been there that it basically looks today what it would have looked like then. Not a lot of change has happened. The landscape hasn't changed. It's a treacherous, large lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee because to them it was really big, but it was a lake. It was a huge lake. And even today, with our technology, it still has a reputation. It's surrounded by mountains. It's uh, kind of in a little bowl, water down in this bowl of mountains. Wind whips in over the mountaintops and makes the waters swirl and become very choppy with little to no warning. It makes you wonder, why would anybody go out on this water? Who's, you know, are they jet skiing? What are they doing? Well, this was a very productive fishing sea. A lot of fish would come out of this sea, so they took the risk, like the ice road truckers do and like the deadliest catch and all of that. They, they took the risk. But the weather was a constant, constant danger. I'll just think, as I'm thinking about my life, the most unpredictable weather I've ever been in was Wyoming. Now, I've been in, I lived in Florida, and hurricanes are serious. But the thing about a hurricane is you see that thing coming. The sky grows black for a day, and you know it's coming your way, and then it hits slowly, and it increases, and then it's, you know, it's a sustained wind. Maybe it's 100 miles per hour for three hours in a row. Um, this was more of like a, a sharp gale, boom, it's on you situation. Like Wyoming, I, I, my joke is that that place wants to hurt you because you're driving in the, in the sun, your convertible's down, you're feeling really good about your life, and then boom, it's a hailstorm, and you're covered in golf ball-sized hail that's filled up your car. So it's a very different kind of place. The disciples get caught in an unexpected situation. In verse 37, it says, a great windstorm arose. NIV says a furious squall. I like that. New American Standard says a fierce gale of wind. Now, in the Greek, the word magus was used to describe the windstorm. That's what's what's behind the word gale, or uh, great. Behind the word great is magus. Uh, It's where we get our English word mega today. I know some of y'all buy the Charmin mega roll. You, You don't have to tell me. It's all right. But I know you know what that word means. So it was a mega windstorm. Waves were breaking into the boat, starting to fill with water. And of course, that's the scary part. The scary part is when the boat starts to fill up. It's kind of like if you watch the ending of of Jaws, or even if you watch the movie, it's like, it's not really that scary of a movie when you think about the fact that if you're in a boat, what could possibly happen, right? But at the end of the movie, the boat starts to fill with water, and you're like, okay, now things are getting scary for real. And that's what happened here. The boat was starting to fill up with water. This was a chaotic scene. The wind was whipping, waves were tossing the boat, it was filling up, and the storm was getting worse by the minute. Now, these men were not sissies, okay? I don't know what picture you have of the disciples, but 
of all the, of all the problems we have with them, they're, they're never really called like sissies in the, in the Bible. They'd been on the water before. They lived a, probably a harder life than you, right? So they knew what they were doing. They were scared. Now, was this fear that they had unreasonable? Was it an unreasonable fear? Was it made up? Was it a laughable phobia? I, you know, I found out there's a word called triskaidekaphobia. You know what that is? Anybody know? Fear of the number 13. That's right. That's a real phobia, an irrational fear of 13. So this isn't that. You know, sometimes you watch TV and, you know, they'll bring out a plate full of cotton balls and people just, you know, they run to the back and it's like they've got this irrational phobia of things. This wasn't that. I mean, they were in the middle of a real storm. It's kind of like when you're in a plane and uh, the, the flight stewardesses and the pilot know when to get scared, when things are serious. So uh, I don't want you to read this and think these are just emotional guys. This, this was a legitimate, big-time storm happening in this boat. And what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, Jesus was asleep in the stern on the cushion. At least they got him a pillow, right? While fully God, Jesus was fully man. He got tired and slept just like we do. This is really tired, really, really tired. Now, I'll just tell you, I'm not a good travel sleeper. Anybody y'all like me, I cannot sleep on a plane. I cannot sleep on a bus. I, nothing. I can't do it. I wish I could. You buy, I'll buy one of those pillows that stabilizes your head, and I just, I can't do it. Jesus is asleep, probably constantly bouncing, and people are screaming, get the rope, get the rope. I mean, it's a chaotic scene, and he is out. So, that's the raw data. You got the case study, you got the information, this is what happened. We've assigned no value. This is what happened, okay? So, that's the fear-inducing event. We're going to move on. Number two, we're going to see a false interpretation of the evidence, a false interpretation of the evidence. So this is where you're going to see meaning and value assigned. There's a storm. Okay, so what? What do the disciples and Jesus think about it? What are they going to do? Let's read onward. Mark 4, 38, about halfway through. It says, They woke him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We'll pause there. Now, we know what the disciples were thinking as the storm was brewing. They were thinking what many people think when a dark storm of life rolls through. They look at Jesus and they say, do you not care that we are perishing? What an interesting choice of words to say to Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, we're perishing and you don't even care. You're sleeping on the job. Where were you when I needed you? We still say that to Jesus today, don't we? How strange that must strike the ear of Jesus who came on a mission from God to save us so that we would not perish in the fires of hell and God's judgment. We accuse him of not caring about our perishing. He who would pour out everything, be nailed to a cross, be mocked, crown of thorns, purple robe, whipped, spit, 
he had to hear from his disciples, you don't even care. You don't even care about us. Jesus wakes up, hears that. First thing he does, rebuke the wind. It's an interesting language choice. It's the same words used when demons are rebuked. It's almost as if the wind is in the wrong. He then speaks to the sea, peace, be still. And here's that second use of the Greek word mega. There was a great calm. The wind ceased. Instantly at the word of Jesus, the wind stopped. The water's calm. I can't prove that a rainbow came out. I can't prove, you know, that a little song was sung. I don't know. But it certainly seems like things changed drastically. And, and it's, port, it's important to say, uh, there is no mistaking this for just the storm sputtering out, okay? Because you'll read liberal commentators, and they'll say, well, Jesus was just really good at reading the storms, and he kind of saw it was coming to an end, and it was just like, be still. And then it ended right then, because he waited for it. No, you've never seen, I promise you, you've never seen in your life a storm go from raging to instant stop. There's always a tapering off of that storm, right? Imagine an instant because someone says so, it just goes from complete black skies, rain, wind, lightning, thunder, to boom, it's over. You would know that he did it. After Jesus rebuked the storm, he then turns to rebuke his disciples in the calm. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I want you to know that I did look at the Greek on this, and I found something interesting. The typical Greek word for fear is phobos. It's where we get our English word phobia. You know, claustrophobia, arachnophobia, triskaidekaphobia, of course. That's actually not the Greek word here in Mark. Jesus said, why are you so delios? What is delios? It's the word for cowardice, being timid. Would you say there's a difference in being afraid versus being cowardly, timid? Many great heroes of the past were afraid, but they marched onward and met their challenges. Certainly, as we think of a classic example, the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy probably had some level of fear in them, but that doesn't mean that they were cowards as they were taking the beachhead, right? In fact, one of the most popular verses on fear in the Bible is 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Just know that's not phobos, that's delia, cowardice. Jesus said, why are you being so cowardly? Have you still no faith? So, here it is, might hit hard, I don't know. Jesus expects his disciples not to be cowards. Jesus expects us not to be timid and weak, and fearful people. And look, you can try to interpret this in, in some creative way that makes you feel better. Trust me, I tried, okay? But Jesus wakes up to his disciples, panicked in the storm, questioning, why don't you care about us? And he tells the wind, hey, zip it. And he tells the disciples, why are you guys acting like a bunch of cowards? Where's your faith? That's a boss move, if I've ever heard one. And it hurts because we all have areas of our life where we have let cowardice Slip in, right? All of us. Maybe you're proud of the way that you've handled the COVID period, the year and a half. Maybe you're cowardly at times. I know I was. Maybe you put on a good show in front of people, but you're a coward in leading your family. 
Maybe you're a coward in sharing your faith in Christ. Maybe you're a coward when tragedy strikes and you turn to God every time something bad remotely happens and you say, where were you, God? How could you let this happen? Maybe you're a coward for standing in what you believe in when the pressure comes in life. The point of this story is in part to show us that our faith is only as good as the testing of that faith. It's only as good as the test. We don't always know what our faith is made of until the storm rolls in and beats us up and shakes us violently. Warren Wearsby says this, it's not enough for us merely to learn a lesson or to be able to repeat a teaching. We must also be able to practice that lesson by faith, and that is one reason God permits trials to come to our lives. I think of James 1, 2 that says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The biblical command to live by faith is not limited to correct answers on a theology test or Bible trivia or what we present as the best versions of ourselves on our Facebook page. It has to do also with living courageously. The mantra of Joshua is, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. And Jesus had to teach them that on this day, and yes, this applies even to the Sea of Galilee. Your job, disciple of Jesus, is not to stop the storm. We hear many preachers approach this text with this takeaway, five easy tips to calming the storms of your life, or something similar. But you need to know that that is not your job. Your job is not to rebuke the wind and the waves. Your job is to have unwavering faith in the one who can and fear him more than you fear the storm. The disciples thought this must mean Jesus doesn't care. That's what all the evidence is pointing to. He must not care. If he cared, he would not let us go through this storm. But we know that was a false interpretation. If life were free of struggle, there would be no avenue or need for faith. The call to be strong and courageous would be empty and meaningless. Jesus calls his disciples to reject cowardice and to go forward in faith. We have seen a fear-inducing event, a false interpretation of evidence. And number three, we see a fresh ideal to experience a new paradigm, if you will. Now, you might think the story is over. You might stop there and think, okay, this is a simple message. Faith over fear. Got it. Got it. Thanks, Pastor. But what if I told you? That's a good meme right there. But what if I told you that Jesus not only wants to replace your fear with faith, but also to replace your fear with a different kind of fear. Look at verse 41. We conclude this passage. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'd like to draw your attention to the final mega of this text now. Verse 41 says that they were filled with great fear mega fear, megas phobos. So there has been a great storm, a great calm, and lastly, a great fear. I want you to notice that this final mega fear 
was not at the size of the storm outside the boat, but rather it was at the power of he who was inside the boat. These disciples, who were, uh, they were more afraid after the storm was calmed than they were during the storm. How? Jesus scared them. You see, I think if we would have walked uh, with these disciples, if we would have asked them before this boat ride, before this Sea of Galilee experience, who is Jesus? I think they would have said, much like what Nicodemus said in John 3, he's a great teacher. He's from God, not from Satan, not like last week. He's from God. Clearly, he works miracles. He's got the power of God. He is on God's side. This is our man. They might have even said Messiah. But this miracle with the weather took things to another level. To control the elements by your spoken word was to enter into a territory reserved for God alone in their mind. That which was mysterious and unknown and uncontrollable, that part of life they just placed in the category of only God can do that. Two weeks ago, we covered one of those categories. Only God can forgive sin. This week, only God can control the weather with his voice. Guess what? Jesus did both. Notice this fear that they have is not corrected by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, why are you so afraid again? Why do you have no faith again? He doesn't say it again. Why? Because the Bible has always been clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't ever want to lose the fear of the Lord. It's a good thing. To have a holy awe and reverence for God is healthy and right and good. That's why Jesus does not correct them on this fear, but he does correct them at their timidity of the storm. In other words, Jesus wants to replace our bad fear with good fear. He wants to replace our cowardice with a healthy fear of himself. Why? Because he knows that whenever you fear your God, whenever you fear dishonoring or displeasing God, the fear of the Lord will absolutely make you more courageous in this life. Here's how. When you fear God more than you fear man, you act like it. You will be less and less concerned over the fears of this world, over the storms of this life, because your main priority is God's opinion on the matter, not man's. So, we are to have faith in Christ, not the storm, and we are to fear Christ, not the storm. God is both the object of our fear and our faith. And so as we analyze this passage, I think we clearly see ourselves in the disciples. They're pulled every which way by their emotions. Anybody feel pulled every which way? Don't know what to believe, don't know what to think. They're all over the place, fearful at the storm, accusing Jesus of not caring, getting rebuked by Jesus, and then being afraid of Jesus. I mean, that's a, that's a wild couple minutes there, isn't it? It's jarring. But that's what a test is. Those tests do come in life. You're not expecting it. You're not planning for it. And boom, something happens that pulls you left, right, up, down, diagonal, side, side, all over. You don't know what to think. You're all over the place. And that's when this stuff counts. That's when this stuff actually matters. So answer this in your heart. When your faith is tested, do you respond with faith or with cowardice? 
in what areas of your life does your faith need to grow? Are you more afraid of the storm or of displeasing your God? Do you accuse him of not caring every time the waters get choppy? Does your faith that you profess with your mouth make any discernible, practical difference in the way you live your life? Because at some point, the rubber must meet the road. All this study that we do is not meant to be theoretical. It's supposed to give you boldness to follow Christ in real life. Jesus expects faith from us. He expects it. He demands it from us. So do you trust him when the sky gets dark and the wind starts to howl? I think we ask today in our response, Lord, please help our unbelief. Meet us where we are. Fill us with faith. May we be strong and courageous, not afraid of the storm, but always with a healthy fear of the Lord. Pray with me.